Okay, welcome back to the Peter Mac Show. This is the second segment of my interview with Stefan Kinsella. And by the way, Stefan, I, I want to make sure I pronounce your first name correctly because I know Stefan Molyneux goes slightly different emphasis on a different syllable, if you will. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, um, yeah, I mean, the right way is Stefan. Stefan, like, like, right. Like, like Stephanie, the girl's name, but without the E. Gotcha. Um, but I'm called Stephen all the time, so I'll take Steph- Stefan. <laughs> no, I'll do Stefan. I, I, yeah, the, the other is a more British-sounding, I guess, or whatever. Okay, let me ask you, so what is your impression of law school in terms of does it, even in a very subtle way or maybe not so subtle way, encourage attorneys to be more left-leaning or more pro-government expansion or socialistic in, in thinking. Is that your perception, or is it pretty neutral? Um, what, what's your take? Um, I think that law school uh, lawyers te- probably tend to be, say, more democratic in right. the U.S. context, more leftist. Uh, whether that's because law school tends to attract those kinds of people or because it converts them into that, I'm not quite sure. I think it's probably a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, lawyers, successful lawyers, let's say, tend to come from, let's say, the cohort of people that um, – like the Yale, the, the influential types, right, that come from the from the limousine liberal or the neocon conservative, you know – mainstream Republican types, and they're not going to be that conservative or libertarian in their thinking. Right. Um, or they would come from the people that just hate math, so they're they're not that good at it. So they're right. going to be your hustler types, your, your plaintiff's lawyers, your ambulance chaser types. And you know they're going to be in favor of whatever kind of laws helps them make money, which is usually right. pro-plaintiff pro laws. Um, Laws that allow you to sue someone for liability, even when they're not really liable. So, right. um, and now I don't think it was always this way. I think law used to be sort of thought of as more of a um, um, a natural, even a natural law type system that worked out the way humans deal with problems. It was it was uh, it was gradually developed by the common law and by human reason, over uh, based upon hierarchies and institutions of society. So it was very conservative in a sense in its bases, right? I mean it right. was based upon private property and private law, institution of marriage and contracts, um, torts, things like that, which are all totally compatible I think with libertarian theory. Sure. Um, I think that the, the emergence of law as a positivist institution, that is thinking of law as written, uh, is what started the – uh, the problem, and it started with democracy and with the the, be- the beginning of the U.S. So the U.S. has a written constitution. England has an unwritten constitution, and that idea of an unwritten constitution is baffling to most Americans because we just think of it as a written thing now, right? Right. We 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 don't even know what English people mean when they say we have a constitution, but it's unwritten. They're like, well, where is it? Right. Because we're so used to thinking of things as being written down. Right. And there are some benefits to things being written down, of course. I mean um, this, the civil codes of, of the continental system were written down for the benefit of the layman, the average person, so they could read it and understand it. Right. Um, cases, decisions of cases in, in the common law were, were written down and released, published so people could read them. 
Um, and there are some benefits of the U.S. Constitution being written down. But it did ingrain this idea of positivism, which is the idea that law comes from the sovereign, that is the state mm. or, or the, the king or God before that, but then right. the king and then, then the government and then the people because of democracy. So you, you get this idea that law is what emanates from or is the will of the people or the government. And so you start thinking of law as just an edict or a command. Mm-hmm. And over time, so then you disconnect in your mind the idea of justice. Or w- rather what you do is because people are used to thinking of law as the kind of concrete implementation of justice, they can't separate justice from law in their minds. Right. But because law is now whatever whatever happens to be on the statute books that someone someone decrees – Mm-hmm. They start thinking of justice as being malleable, and right. so their concept of justice becomes less fixed and less rooted in human nature, and they start thinking like a socialist does, like right. we, we're, we're constructivists. We can construct any reality we want. We can change man's nature. Sure. Uh, you know, if, 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 if pi 3.14 is too messy, we could just decree pi to be three. Right. I mean that's simpler. Or if people don't have health insurance, we can just pass a law. Sure. Or if there's too many, if there's too many earthquakes, we should just pass a law outlawing earthquakes. I mean, <laughs> yeah, as an absurdity, but it's not too far from the way some of these people think about things. So I think that the the modern the modern identification of law with legislation, which is sort of a modern thing in the last 100 years, let's say, mm-hmm. um, has corrupted everyone's understanding of law and it has has perverted and distorted the, the function of law. Um, the fact that it still works at all is a testament to, I think, the, the underlying free market mm. that reigns it in, and, and the roots in common law and in Roman law. Right. Well, Nancy Pelosi at one point was asked uh, years ago when the uh, so-called Affordable Care Act was passed, uh, you know, what's commonly called Obamacare, you know, well, is this constitutional? And her response was something like, are you kidding? And it seems to me that if she had been thoughtful at all, she would have said, you know, you and I wouldn't agree with this answer, but she could have said, well, sure, this is for the general welfare and we are allowed to do this or right. because it's going to be over all 50 states is covered by our power in Congress to regulate commerce. You and I could easily argue against those two positions that she would take, but she didn't even bother to take any. Her response is almost, if we passed it, it's it's constitutional. What the hell are you asking me about? Which is really well, – go ahead. Well, yes, and um, I don't think she's actually completely wrong. Um, there, there's an article that's very um, influential in my mind and, and an article everyone interested in this kind of stuff should read. It's by John Hasnas. He's a libertarian yep. law professor. It's called The Myth of the Rule of Law. Yep. He's, he's one of these guys that's only written a few things, but all of them are like very influential, like, unlike some of us who write a lot and it's all ignored. But um, – <laughs> He, he basically revived or or reified this um, this critical legal studies idea, which most of us would, as libertarians, would be opposed to, because there's a there's a Marxian element behind the critical legal studies idea, um, and there's and like a, those of us who are influenced by Ayn Rand and the idea of objective law and all that, we, we sort of have a a disposition against anyone who would. Um, you know, say that law is not objective and all that. Sure. But I think he has a point, especially when you apply it to legislation, because it is just words written down by people. 
Right. And and when people say, what's the original intent behind this law? There is there really is no original intent because it's a compromise, a political compromise usually, and it's actually done to mask the intents of the legislators. And anyway, why why is that relevant? When law is thought of as what it used to be in the common law and in the Roman law from 2,000 years ago as being an attempt by legal scholars or mediators or judges to find the just answer to a problem that actual people have, then they tend to use common sense norms that everyone shares and base it on decisions that people have had in the past. And so law evolves and does tend to approximate something that's close to what we would think of as justice. Um, but when it starts becoming legislation, right, and you just have to interpret these words, then it is just a crapshoot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I used to be like in law school, like a Randian minarchist type. Right. I, I hated the, the people that would say things like, well, um, the interstate commerce clause of the Constitution or the general welfare clause. You know, the argument would be that, oh, like Nancy Pelosi says that, oh, well, the Constitution says that you have you can provide for the general welfare or the Constitution says that you can regulate uh, interstate commerce. And yeah. therefore, the right. federal government has a, has a lot of power. Stefan, let me inter- let me interject. But my point about her was she didn't even do that. If she had done that, that would have been something. But she just she just totally scoffed at the idea that Congress could do anything apparently that's unconstitutional. That's what bothered me about her answer. Right, right. And, and of course, she's taking it as far as they're going to take it, and people will take it far if right. they can, sure. uh, especially if they're socialist-minded like she is. Sure. Um, and, of course, they tend to equate constitutionalism uh, or, or, or legalism with you know anything that the Congress passes is constitutional, which sure. was which was kind of the result of the 1930s 1940s cases, like the Lochner decisions after after Franklin Roosevelt's uh, New Deal stuff, when the, right. the Supreme Court at first was shutting them down based upon uh, constitutional arguments, and then finally um, under threats they 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 backed down, and they they allowed his stuff. Um, but the point is. You know, sometimes we would argue that the Constitution really doesn't allow even that much stuff, but I think you could argue that it, it kind of does, and it it obviously has. Right. Um, I, I I think my main point is that as libertarians, we should stop thinking of the Constitution as being equivalent to libertarian principles. No, I yeah, I get that, I get that completely, and and but your your point is well taken. It's just that. As I see it, we are so far into the world of anti-libertarianism, if you will, if we get if we had some judges that would move us back toward the Constitution, that's not far enough for you and me, but at least it's in the right direction. Um, um, I think that's largely true. It's not completely true. I, th- okay. I, I, I do agree with that, which is why I, I'm, I, I favor Trump over um, the other side. Just because his judicial picks are – they're not perfect, but they're they're better than you could expect a Hillary Clinton or an Obama to pick, right? Right. Um, so yeah, they have more adherence to that, and the Constitution did put – did pretend to put some limits on the, on the federal government, which are ignored, which shows the, the, the fallacy of relying upon written constitutions to limit the state because the state interprets the Constitution, right? I mean right. the Constitution is just a paper document. Right. That is interpreted by the executive 
the Congress, and the judges. Right. And they're all members of the government. So, of course, there's a bias for them to interpret it in favor of their own power, and they do that, Sure, which is a perfect uh, explanation of why they decided um, Texas v. White, the, 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 uh, the Civil War case, which kind of answered the, as, uh, addressed the question of the legality of secession of the states. Mm-hmm. Um, like, in my view, the Constitution clearly – provided for a right to secede simply because it didn't give the federal government the power to stop it. Right. Uh, but w- when push comes to shove, the federal government wants to preserve their, their unity and their power, and they're going to go along – the, the justices are going to go along with what the, the government's decided. So I, I just think we need to stop actually thinking of these guys as like the judges on the courts. They're not really real judges anymore. They're just appointed functionaries they're 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 ministry they're just employees of the state they're really not real judges because a real judge their job is to try to find a just result in a real dispute between two people right uh, over some conflict and these guys it's just not their job it's not even their fault they're they're applying statutes that have nothing to do with justice i mean uh, you know uh, how so, how much someone should be sentenced to prison for a, for a, a cocaine or marijuana conviction really has nothing to do with justice. They're just applying the the law, right, as written. Right. But but let me let me read to you a quote from uh, uh, an associate justice of the Arizona Supreme Court. I got this from uh, the Cato's letter. Uh, uh, he says, quote, the, ju- the judiciary is called upon to be very robust and aggressive in striking down laws that are contrary to the Constitution, while at the same time it is supposed to be very constrained with regard to the separation of powers. I call the first half of that equation judicial activism. In other words, a judiciary that is active in holding the two branches of government to their limited and defined powers and upholding the rights of the people. I call the second half of that equation judicial lawlessness. And that is where the courts stray into creating law rather than interpreting and applying the law. He, he goes on to say, we are oath bound to do that. That is to interpret rather than make the law. But it's such a mighty temptation for a judge to say, the legislature couldn't possibly have intended what they say they intended through legislation. Let's rewrite that just a little bit. And he calls yeah, himself I, a textualist. It would be great, in my view, if more judges were like that. Well, I um, I have a feeling that's Clint Bullock because you that's said exactly Arizona. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So he he's an anomaly because he's a libertarian who happened to somehow get onto a, a high court. Right. Um, <laughs> um, and he's actually more uh, federal government oriented than I would be. Um, I'm way more of a skeptic of federal government powers than he is. I think he's been a big uh, Clint himself has been a big um, opponent of state. I think grassroots tyranny, he calls it, right? So state mm-hmm. laws, and he's probably more centralist in the sense that he thinks federal law should strike down state law when it's unlibertarian or unconstitutional more than I would because I'm actually a big skeptic of the, the entire 14th Amendment and this extension of the 14th Amendment. But, but, but as a libertarian, yeah, I agree with you. But so here's the thing. If you have a government, if you have a state, the tripartite system of government that we have, right, executive, right. legislative, and judicial, separation of powers, is probably probably a good idea, but 
like all things related to the government, it's not 100 percent a good idea because it also helps legitimize the government. It's just like right. democracy. Right. When you have democracy, you limit what the state can do because everyone can vote. Right. But you also legitimize the state because people can now be told you can't complain if the state taxes 50 percent of your income because you are a part of the government. Right. Things like this. Right. So these are things the state uses to give itself cover. Um, sure. I, I do think that if the if the judiciary now as as a libertarian, as an American, as a constitutionalist, uh, I think that what judges should do is they especially federal judges, they should view themselves as a co-equal branch of the government, which is what Thomas Jefferson's view was. He called it concurrent review. So you have some libertarians and some uh, some lefties. And some conservatives now, they, they have a view of what's called judicial supremacy. Mm-hmm. So they think that the Supreme Court or the judicial branch of the federal government is the sole and ultimate power that can construe the Constitution. Right. Um, I don't believe that at all. In fact, the idea that the, that the, gov- that the, cons- the, sorry, that the judges could even strike down laws as unconstitutional was controversial – I do agree with that, however, I, but because of the unique American system of concurrent review. Mm-hmm. But I think it means concurrent review. That means that all three branches have a veto over the others. Mm-hmm. So if the, if the president doesn't want to do something because he thinks it's unconstitutional, he shouldn't enforce it, mm-hmm. uh, which was Jefferson's uh, view, I believe, in the Alien and Seditions case, which was like a type of censorship law. Mm-hmm. Um, if the Congress believes – if a congressman believes a law is unconstitutional, he has he has a duty by his oath mm-hmm. to vote against it. And if a judge thinks that a law that's brought before him is unconstitutional, he has a duty not to enforce it. Mm-hmm. So all these are like vetoes, but they mean concurrent review. They don't mean judicial supremacy. They do mean judicial um, – like they're co-equal with the right. other branches. Right. So I do be- – so what, what people call judicial activism is when a judge tries to like like the, like the force busing laws. Right. But that was based in part upon the Civil Rights Act, which was a statute by Congress. So he mm. couldn't have done that in the vacuum. Mm. You, couldn't, you couldn't have the Americans with Disabilities Act. You couldn't have the Copyright Act or the patent law um, enacted by judges on their own piecemeal. Right. Without the Congress first enacting a statute, right? Um, so I think judges should be active in the sense of refusing to go along with what they, in their heart or in their conscience, what they think is unconstitutional or even unjust. I mean, I'm of the opinion that if you're if you're a member of the government, the judiciary or otherwise, you sh- you, you shouldn't enforce a law. Like I don't think the judges should enforce marijuana. Or cocaine laws, even right. though they're they're probably legal and constitutional, right. I just think they're they're immoral. Right. But certainly, certainly they're not constitutional because the Constitution doesn't authorize Congress to um, to enact on on drug laws. And right. so you mentioned the Second Amendment earlier. So the Second Amendment is a good example of why you could argue that the Bill of Rights was a, was a, was a mistake because. The, the Second Amendment is a little bit ambiguous because it does have that precatory clause about, sure. um, about, about the militia and right. all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, but the Ninth Amendment, which was Madison's idea, right? The right. Ninth Amendment was meant, to, was meant to protect against the problem of, of enumerating rights in the first eight amendments. Right. It was meant to say that just because we listed a right 
and we forgot to list another one doesn't mean that that right doesn't exist. Right. In other words, the federal government is one of limited powers, not not plenary powers. Right. Um, right. And if you didn't have the Second Amendment, all the federal gun laws would still be unconstitutional. Right. And we would then we wouldn't have to argue about this stupid uh, militia clause. Right. Right. Uh, so. In a way, the Second Amendment is a problem. So when someone says, is this law a violation of the Second Amendment? My view is, I don't know, but it's a violation of the Ninth Amendment. Sure. And it's a violation of the Tenth Amendment. Right. And it's a violation of the entire Constitution. So the Second Amendment should be irrelevant. And the fact that everyone focuses on that language um, shows the danger which the, federal, which the anti-federalists saw of having a Bill of Rights. Right. We're probably better off by having it in, in the end. Yeah, probably, because at least there's something that we can grab onto. Uh, and occasionally the, the, the Supreme Court will rule in a way that would be more consistent with, with you and me or closer to what we want. But uh, uh, you're right. If we didn't have, you know, you and I are anarcho-capitalists, right? So we would like to not have a state. If there's no state... You don't need a Bill of Rights because there's no entity that has the powers that can transgress against you. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean that as a practical matter, we don't prefer some limits on state power. The question is th then becomes a practical one. Like right. uh, does democracy, for example, does a written constitution, does it actually restrict – government excess? Does it actually protect rights or does it enable it? I don't think that's easy to answer. Uh, you, you could argue that in a, in a, in a pre-1776 situation when you had a monarchy and you have a government and right. everyone knows that they're not the king. Everyone knows that they're the subjects of the king. Right. Okay, they have to obey the law. There's penalties if they don't. The, the, the king has to try to protect his citizens to some degree to keep favor and to keep from being decapitated. Right. But there's no there's no confusion about who is the governed and who are the governed right. and the governing, right? right. Um, so the government and the governed are know who, know who they are. They know their place. Um, and may, maybe it would be inconceivable for a king to impose 50% taxes on his populace uh, from 8,000 miles in England mm -hmm. uh, in, 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 19, uh, in 2018. Um, whereas when we have democracy, they can get away with that from 3,000 miles away in D.C. Yeah. So it's not clear to me that moving towards these, um, these, these systems that people claim limit the government mm -hmm. actually limit the government. They might right. – legitimize the government instead and let them get away with far more than they could if they were just seen as the aggressor that they are. Right. Well, and it's, you know, that's what's so sad to me. I, I have a, a high school colleague of mine who's now a law professor, and he's, like most, I think, very left-leaning. And if I were to ask him, why does the Supreme Court get to have the final say on anything? He would say, well, that's that's it. And I would say, well, there's nothing in the Constitution that gives him the final say, you know, which harkens back to what you were saying, the three co-equal branches of government, not one branch that gets to declare that the passage of laws by the legislative branch are constitutional or unconstitutional. But th this this kind of discussion that you and I are having, Stefan, 
would just not even occur with certain people in the legal community because I guess as you said, they're functionaries. They're just they're just gonna go ahead and interpret the law and they're gonna try to argue their side based on the law as best they can, and they're not gonna worry about whether it's moral or just, or they believe that whatever the government does is just. And it, although that's clearly a contradiction, because then they would have to say there's ne- there have never been any immoral laws, which of course they would would have right. to agree that there are. I, yeah, I mean they're they're working within the system, of course. They right. they don't think that deeply. They don't need to. I mean, these are basically democratic socialists, and right. they know that the system is roughly in their favor, and they're just trying right. to nudge it in their direction. And they don't they don't right. care about. Uh, I mean, look, you could. It's like the minimum wage. Like if if these idiots ask for a fifteen dollar or a thirty dollar minimum wage, right. you or I are going to say, "Why not a hundred? Why sure. not a million? Right. And then they'll just say something like, "That's preposterous." <laughs> and you and I are thinking, like, "But why? I mean, what, what's the limit?" And, right. and they don't think in those terms. They're they're just trying to move the ball down their field as they see it. Right. Um, and it's the same thing. Like, uh, why? Why is the U.S. Supreme Court the highest? Why not the United Nations? Right. Which right. was the fear in the fifties and the sixties that we would have a sort of secession of our sovereignty in the U.S. to international organizations. Right. Right. Um, uh, but I, I don't. I, 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 that would be worse, probably, because they're more socialist and they have more to take from us. But theoretically, what's wrong with having the United Nations settle things as opposed to the United States Supreme Court? Why should it be? Right. Why should it be a national based? That's nationalistic, right? I mean, they're opposed right. to nationalism, so why not oppose nationalism? This is why not be international? One, and which is of course what communism and Marxism is. It's an international form of. Uh, 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 I mean, fascism was was nationalistic, but right, you know. Uh, why not? Why not universalize it and say that you know uh, let, let the let the world courts and the world legislative agency, which is why of course Britain has left the EU. I right. mean because uh, they're afraid of they want a little to reclaim a little bit of their sovereignty, right? Because they they know what the consequences are of having a world democracy. Uh, we would be paying. Sure. You know, our, our standard of living w- would plummet, and everyone would have a right to Obamacare. Right. And the world would go to hell. Exactly. But when you but when you tell such people, you know, well, at this point, we have sort of an anarchy of nations, if you will. Right. I mean, there's some some power of the United Nations, uh, but it's really only to the extent that people will agree or abide by its proclamations. But absent that, you just got different nations doing what they want to. And sometimes they get into wars and sometimes they can avoid wars. And you or I would say, well, if you're if you're opposed to anarchy, why not a world government? But a lot of people on the right would say, oh, no, no, that'd be the worst thing that could happen for the reasons that you just laid out. And then you and I could say, well, that's why we don't that's why we don't want you know Washington, D.C. to have that much power. We'd rather have more decentralization, you know, and ideally all the way down to the individual person. But if it was decentralized more, that would be that would be better, too. But trying to talk consistency to these people is, it's really sad to me as a non-lawyer when you approach these questions with somebody who's like a law professor or something like that. They don't care about consistency, seemingly. Stefan, or am I wrong? No, only to the extent when they have to make arguments before a judge and they they want to be persuasive. So that's just the art of rhetoric or, or persuasion. 
But, you know, I mentioned earlier this Hasnes article. There's another article um, that is by Alfred Kuzan, who's actually not quite a libertarian, but it was in the Journal of Libertarian Studies in the first issue, I think, or and it's called Do We Ever Really Get Out of Anarchy? That's another article people should read. It's very short, and he argues kind of what you're arguing, that the nations of the world are in anarchy with respect to each other. Sure. But not only that, the people that compose the state of a given country are in a sense in anarchy with respect to each other because there's no one who's going to make them do their jobs. They're all following this sort of um, hierarchy of rules to, to keep keep their positions or to, to keep the system going, but no one makes them abide by the rules which the state says are the rules that constitute the, the state. So there's anarchy inside the state, and there's anarchy mm-hmm. between states. Mm-hmm. So the question is not, is anarchy possible? Because anarchy exists. Sure. So the only question is, what kind of anarchy do you want? Mm-hmm. And when you when you put the question that way, then our, you, know, you and I, are, we're anarcho-libertarians or anarcho-capitalists. So you can't reject what we say because we're anarchists, because everyone's really an anarchist. The question is only what kind of rules, what kind of anarchy do you want? Let's uh, let's take a quick break, and maybe we can expound upon that uh, a little bit when we come back, uh, Stefan. So this is uh, the Peter Mack Show. You're listening to my interview with Stefan Kinsella, and we'll be back in just a minute. 